You can turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. As the preacher continues to study the topic of wisdom, now he specifically turns to consider the example of economic wisdom or wisdom with our finances. And we'll see that that's that although he's using this as an example, it provides a principle that's much more universal, much more broad in its application in our lives. And so we look at this passage together, and hopefully we are challenged in how we think about money, how we spend money, how we save or don't save. But this will be even uh, much more important to us in our spiritual lives. In our, the way that we uh, apply it in our homes, with our families, with our relationships. And so this, this is followed next week. We'll look at a passage that commends, once again, joy to us. So you kind of have an idea of the, the context that this comes in. He's continuing his study of wisdom, giving us instruction on wisdom. And he's bringing us right back to where he's gone multiple times. <clears throat> To this challenge to an exhortation for us to experience joy. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this passage. And we thank you for the challenge that it is to our lives. So often we compare ourselves to others and we think we're doing okay. Or maybe we compare ourselves to others and we feel ashamed. But ultimately, we want to honor you. We want to trust in your wisdom, not our own, not this world's wisdom. And so help us to set aside all of those cares and focus our attention upon this passage now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear hearts that are softened to respond appropriately to this truth. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, <clears throat> in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, in the past 20 years, we've witnessed two of the biggest financial disasters in the nation's history. 
We saw the dot-com crash of 2000 and the housing market collapse of 2008. And in both cases, the market was saturated with inflated prices that created this bubble of instability. And they oftentimes use that language and sometimes it's called the dot-com bubble or the real estate bubble. And if we're anything like generations prior who went through the Great Depression and survived, we would take what little we have, what little resources we have left after these crashes and just bury them, right? Put them in the safest location possible, hold on to it, and only touch it in cases of emergency. For many, that has been the response, right? But what we'll see here is the preacher encourages perseverance. It encourages trusting and taking risks. Life remains filled with mysteries. It remains filled with uncertainties about what will come. But the sovereignty of God gives us this assurance that his promises will be fulfilled, that he keeps his promises. And so how we face those, uncertainty, those uncertainties in our own life determine whether we have any real wisdom at all, any true wisdom. And so the idea or the point, I think, of these verses is that we should take wisely calculated risks for God. Take wisely calculated risks for God. Looking at verses 1 and 2, we see this challenge to invest wisely. These verses are about the benefits of business and the advantages of having good business sense. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. You say, that's odd. Right? If I throw some bread out on the water, I may find it after a few days. I certainly wouldn't want it or wouldn't want to offer that to anyone or eat that. That's kind of gross, right? It's all soggy and uh, moldy at that point. No, more than likely, he's not expecting us to get excited about soggy bread, but he's referring to the food trade. It's actually, it's this idea of sending out. Cast is maybe gives us a different image than we should have. It's, it's sending out upon the surface of the water like with on a boat right, to another land that will return after many days. And it will return profits, right? So, you, so that what you send out is a risk. You're sending out a, something that had value to you, something that was a benefit to you of immediate value in order to receive something of a greater value in return, something in the future. So the point is to take the risk of sending out bread in order to receive a good return. Right, to be wise about that, however, because in verse 2, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, some take this to, to re refer to generosity, right? Giving a portion to seven would be like the perfect number. So just being completely generous and then go beyond that, one beyond. Give to eight. But I think in the context here, the implication is not so much generosity, although that's certainly true, and we can turn to many passages where we would be encouraged to do that. But he's talking about diversifying your investments, 
right? Spreading them out because you don't know what disaster awaits. And if, if you invest heavily in one market or one particular stock, what's going to happen if that industry tanks? And some of you maybe have, have played the game, uh, the stock market game. If not, go to howthemarketworks.com and, and it, involve your family in this. I think it's, it's important right, to have fun, to try to figure out which stocks are going to improve over time. And you'll notice that depending on the kind of news you receive that day, the stocks go up and down on a daily basis. And depending on the kinds of reports that those companies make, we'll determine whether that stock is going to go up or down. Maybe their financial report is, is not as positive as they had planned. And so that stock is going to drop. But of course, as you do this over time and as you consider what the experts say about the stock market, you, you find out that you must diversify. Right? Otherwise, you're just you're, you're placing all your hopes in one particular stock and, and it's going to drastically go up and down. So as you diversify, as you invest in several different kinds of stocks, you, the goal is, of course, to, to buy low and sell high. But diversifying your portfolio will mitigate the, the risks you're taking. And, and ultimately, that is, I think, what he's saying here. Spread your investments out over many different places, over, over, over many different sources, so that you can eliminate some of the, the dangerous risk that's involved in that. Now, of course, as I've said already, the preacher is stating a, a principle that has much broader application than our finances. In fact, our, our greatest investments in life will cost much more than money. Right? They'll cost our time. They'll cost our affections. And so take wisely calculated risks for God. Leads us to the wisest investments are those that you cannot lose. Right? Matthew chapter 6 Verses 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you should more than anything focus on is recognizing what is valuable for eternity and investing your time and your affections there, right? Which will involve your resources as well, right? Your treasure. So Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can't lose or what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, to, to give everything for the kingdom of God, which is an imperishable inheritance awaiting for us. And to place all of our investments there. But he goes on from here to say in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 that in investing wisely takes patience and perseverance. And so here he challenges us not to be lazy. Look at verse 3. 
If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Okay, so we can predict what will happen in nature, right, with, with some good accuracy. We can look at the clouds. We can see rain is coming. We can note that a tree is about to fall, or when it begins to fall, we know exactly where it's going to land. Gravity does its work consistently. Nature continues its course so clouds inform us that rain is coming and the direction of an object, object's fall determines where it will land. But look at verse 4. What's the point of that? He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So now he's, he's saying that as we look at nature, as we consider this course, oftentimes we use that as an excuse to not work. It seems to discourage laziness that's based upon watching the weather. Lazy people are really skilled at finding excuses to get out of their work. It looks a bit too windy to sow today. Or I'll have to reap when the sky clears up. I wouldn't want to ruin all the collecting I do. Now, laziness may manifest itself more frequently at home rather than work. So we're not just thinking in categories of business here. You can, be a, you can put all of your energy into work and become a workaholic. And so then you can pride yourself that I'm not lazy like the person next to me. And then go home and be so exhausted that you have no time for your kids no time for your spouse. You've put all of your investments in the wrong place. Right? You haven't diversified. You haven't recognized that your energy is limited. And so, so work hard and then come home and invest there as well. Right? We see this in the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25, Verses really 14 all the way through 30. We won't read the entire section, but it's this parable that Jesus gives of three servants. A master gives the first servant five talents. The second one, he gives two talents. The third one, he gives one talent. And then he comes back and sees these, these servants return to him with their, well, he comes to them and he asks them, what have you done with the talent I've given you? First one has doubled it. He's now, at, now has 10 Second one has doubled his. He now has four talents. And the third one, not so much, right? He says, I knew, in verse 24, Master, I knew you had you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. 
from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the wicked servant is the one who in fact didn't lose anything. Think about that. The one who was wicked preserved what he was given. He made sure that what he gave was exactly what he received. He, that's a lot better than most of us today, isn't it? I'm, it seems like he was a better steward of his resources than many who live on debt. Who spend what they don't have and find it impossible to return what they've borrowed. Here, the wicked servant was rebuked for doing nothing with the talent he had received, with just preserving it. And he was punished for being lazy and unambitious. And again, although the preacher and the and Jesus here in his parable are using financial examples, these are universal principles. So the storms in our lives, right, we can predict them just like the weather. They're coming. And they will oftentimes paralyze us with fear or provide another excuse for us to procrastinate on what God's called us to do. Well, let me get my house in order before I follow this charge, this command. Let me get my act together before I really commit to church. Either way, the work is neglected. Whether you're neglecting it out of fear or procrastination, the point is that it, the work is not being done. And God will not be honored by that attitude. See, disciples are called to make wisely calculated risks for God on a daily basis. Right? Again, in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's a hard truth to hear. And we've heard this before. But have we applied it in all the different areas of our lives? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you give in that way? Do you give of your time and your energy and your resources in a way that is self-forgetful. Tim Keller says this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. When you think about that, the response this culture gives to those who are suffering from a low self-esteem, the response this culture gives is to 
not worry about others. Not worry about what others think. Right? Just set your own goals in life. And just keep reminding yourself that, that you're worth it. Right? It's, it's about raising your own esteem. Having a high self-esteem. Well, in the past, it was the opposite. Right? It was to give people legalistic demands right, that they could never live up to. And so we've altered that by completely flipping it on its head. But in fact, humility is not thinking of yourself at all. It's not recognizing that you have a low self-esteem and therefore I need to, I need to start developing a, a better sense of pride in myself. No, in fact, it's becoming self-forgetful so that, first of all, you prioritize God's honor and then you prioritize others over yourself. Right, that's what true humility is. That's the essence of gospel humility. It's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And so that is a wise, calculated risk because when you're not thinking about yourself, you're extremely vulnerable, aren't you? You don't care if others judge you nor do you care what your own conscience would say against you. That's, what, that's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, I don't, I don't care what others, that others judge me. In fact, I don't even care that my, what my conscience will say. He doesn't even let himself judge himself because he's so focused on what God has placed in front of him. He's trusting in God. And so that's the challenge to avoid laziness, to begin thinking of yourself less. So laziness is not an excuse, but neither is ignorance. And this is where he goes in verses five and six. You see this phrase, you do not know, several times. Actually, go back to verse two. You see it there. For you know not what disaster will happen on the earth. And then we'll see it three more times in these verses five and six. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Again, in the, in the morning, sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So this is about ignorance. This is about our inability to know. And, and he's talked about this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's been talking about the challenges of, of gaining wisdom and of our inability to ultimately achieve what we're after. But the examples here specifically are the, that you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now, there's a double meaning of the word here, spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruach, and you see that same double meaning in the Greek as well. But this idea... It, that word can be translated as wind or spirit or even breath. But look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. Literally, that's he who observes the ruach will not sow. And, the, and now he goes in verse 5. As you do not know the way 
the Ruach comes to the bones in the womb. So the question is, is he using that double meaning? Is he using a different understanding of the word here, as would imply by our ESV and other translations? But if you have a different translation, it may, may actually use the same word for both. Because some interpret this to mean you don't know the way of the wind, right? And, and then the second statement would be, nor do you know how bones are formed in the womb. Either way, it really is emphasizing the point that we can't understand everything in nature. We can't understand the way life is formed. And, and here, we might say we know a lot more than we used to. We can, science has, has, has given us, and medicine and, and, and has given us a lot of better understanding about how life forms. But he's talking here about something much bigger. He's talking about how personhood is formed. How the spirit enters into the body. That's something that God must do. Right? There are mysteries in creation because there are mysteries in the creator. And if we can't understand this, then of course there's going to be mysteries in the work of God who makes everything. In verse 6, he closes with the fact that you don't know the outcome, right? In the morning you sow your seed, and at evening do not withhold your hand. Here he's saying, basically, continue the work. Sow in the morning, sow in the evening. Don't stop doing it because you don't know the outcome. You don't know which seed is going to take root. Which seed is going to produce the most fruit? So sow liberally to increase your odds of success, not knowing, therefore, the ignorance we have about the future actually encourages us to take greater risks. And so humans, right, we make new discoveries every day, which ultimately serve to increase our sense of curiosity. It is a never-ending search. Phil Riken says, We know more perhaps than Solomon did about the growth of a child from conception to birth, but this knowledge does not diminish our sense of wonder. In fact, the more we know about life in the womb, the more amazing it seems. You can do the same thing with space. When scientists discover how vast spaces and all, and all the different galaxies and stars that we can see, if we're thinking rightly, it increases our wonder and our awe in the God who made it. If you're thinking like an atheist, it's somehow used against the Creator. As if we can figure out things on our own. But in fact, we should be filled with greater amazement and awe. And now Riken concludes with this. He says, one whole new person, sometimes more than one, grows inside the body of another person. That miracle should increase our wonder. So discovery, discovering new mysteries in life should increase our awe in the Creator. If the mystery of our salvation is the greatest of all, 
then the greatest risk would involve evangelism. Right? And so sow the gospel liberally. That's what, where we see this principle applied in the New Testament. The parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. Jesus is teaching them a parable. And he says, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice he doesn't rebuke the sower. He doesn't say, it was foolish to throw it on the, on the rocky ground. It was foolish to throw it among the thorns. He says, throw it everywhere. Share the gospel liberally. Throw it all over the place because you never know where that good soil is, right? You never know whether a small patch of that good soil is going to be in the middle of a road and that God won't do a work there miraculously. Right, there's no foolproof formula for evangelism or for missions, successful missions. We can't create this perfect blueprint for how to share the gospel in our own context or in another context, another culture. Right? Everyone is unique. Every individual is unique. And the Spirit works uniquely. And he gives us gifts that are unique from one another. But the idea here is that we are taking wisely calculated risks for God, willing to be humiliated, willing to suffer persecution. As we heard from Mike Pettengill month or so ago, we talked about the work of missions. And as we transition from a mission church in our denomination, we want to begin focusing on that task that God's given us, right? Locally here, nationally, and even globally, that we have been given a calling, right? A great commission. In fact, the mission to the world, which is our mission organization in the PCA has challenged us to consider sending 1% or at least praying that 1% of every church would enter into the mission field. And that doesn't sound like a lot. That means less than one of you <laughs> in our church. So that'll take some work. But obviously the idea is, is, is that 1% is... It's, it's a feasible goal. And in fact, it would quadruple the amount of missionaries the PC, PCA has sent. And so let us pray to that end. Let us, let us give of our resources to that end. Let us encourage our children to satisfy that high calling. But in response to this passage I think we need to ultimately recognize that it is what Christ has accomplished. 
for us that allows us to respond in this way. Right? First of all, investing wisely. Jesus invested every spare moment to do his Father's will. And it is what he has secured for us that is our greatest treasure. Not being lazy, Jesus spent every ounce of energy showing compassion to those in need. Living for others. Right? And he continues to supply that same energy by his spirit. If we trust in him, rely upon him to provide it. And lastly, Jesus shed every drop of blood to satisfy the justice of God. And there's a mystery in that salvation that we cannot plumb the depths of, that we cannot understand. And he didn't do this so that we could then go and do the same, but precisely because we couldn't do that for ourselves because we were utterly and completely dependent upon his work on our behalf. And there's a wondrous mystery there that we should behold. Right? And in our response, come behold the wondrous mystery, we'll sing of that, and I think we should reflect upon that truth until we are so moved to, to sow that message liberally with everyone we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father,